Welcome to Propinquity Press, where we bring people together with the hope that that experience changes the world. We hope you enjoy this selection by author William Spangler Dunning. Life gets easier when you allow yourself to love the person you are now, but look forward to the person you are becoming. BSD. Life is not always elementary. I learned early what it means to be in the back of the line. I was born into a family as the fifth of six children and was often told by my older brother that I was an unplanned pregnancy of my parents. The truth is that I don't know that my parents really planned any of their children, but the purpose of that story, as a reminder that I was the younger brother, stuck with me for many years. I was shorter than all my classmates and when we were lined up according to height, I inevitably was at the back of the line. I struggled with reading and was later diagnosed with dyslexia during a time when that was just becoming something to label the slow kids. And if that was not enough, I was the last kindergarten class to ever attend the aging Douglas Elementary School in Ottumwa, Iowa. I simply learned to see the world from behind and around the heads of others. Though I did not know it then, this perspective would become my strength and help me turn out okay. Dyslexic Plato. In a moment of chaos and terror, while I went about the daily kindergarten classroom skill-building activity designed to teach us how to survive in the world through the intricate art of making a Plato snake, I learned how dangerous and exciting it can be to actually be the first at even one thing. Though, I am sure that I went to that kindergarten class every day for nine months of the 1973-74 school year, I really only remember one particular day with any clarity. It is not that all the other days were not worth remembering, but that the moments of that particular day coalesced into a microcosm of my entire elementary years. In many ways, it became the model for how I would understand the rest of my life. Douglas Elementary had been built many decades before I came to live on the earth, and if my memory serves me correctly, had been retrofitted to electric lights from the old gas lamps. However, when you are five years old, your memory is often skewed to understand things as older than they are, actually. Just the same, since that year was to be the last year of its existence as a place of education, it can safely be assumed that it had been built sometime after the dinosaurs roamed the earth, but slightly before telephones were invented. My mother used to tell me that it was the historical school in Ottumwa and had been built as one of the first all-grade schools in the county. Every visit to the school was like going back in time. I have fond memories of descending the steep hill to the school and merging onto one of the last brick streets in Ottumwa. The trees on either side of the street created cooling shadows that draped across the crisscross pattern of the red bricks and transported me in my imagination to an era where children were delivered to the school by horse-drawn wagons. Back then, when the population was still developing in my hometown, students in that particular geographical area would have started in kindergarten on the bottom floor and finished their high school years on the top floors. Whatever the school had been in its early years had long been lost to the relentless winds of erosion, 
both to its physical structures as well as to the pride of the teachers who occupied the classrooms. The building sat on what used to be the ancient riverbed and therefore was below almost everything in town. If my memory is correct again, I believe that on most days it even cast a shadow over the crumbling brick of its own exterior. The neighborhood around the school had changed so much over the years and with it, the traffic patterns surrounding the school shifted as well. In order to adjust, multiple remodeling campaigns had occurred in the final years, shifting the primary entrance around to the side of the building and away from what had become a speeding thoroughfare. Most students now chose to enter the grounds from the alley behind the school. This created the unintended and subtle lesson that the children, like me, who now attended this particular school in its waning years, were like servants who were not quite worthy to enter through the architectural grandeur of the front entrance. On the only day that I now fully remember entering the building, it was cold and raining as I splashed my way into the long, dark hallway of the entrance. At that young height, with each side of the hallway being filled with coats hanging from hooks and their partner set of rubber boots stacked beneath them, it was like making my way through a small forest. Because this is the only day I remember, I have limited pictures in my mind of the true layout of the school. Most of what resurfaces in my visions of what was the interior of my first elementary school appears in my mind as an out-of-focus and blurry image of doors and windows. When I allow myself to revisit the blonde hardwood floors of that old school, I turn at the end of the hallway and see the bright light of Miss Verital's kindergarten classroom that became ground zero for why I tend to see the world the way I do. What some might need years of counseling to get over became yet another experience that helped me see life as a storyteller. I never remember walking into the classroom. I just remember sitting at the long wooden table with other students as I began to make the world's largest Play-Doh snake. I even remember the deep blue color of the Play-Doh as I rolled it back and forth and watched it stretch out farther and farther down the table. In my memory, there is no sound, just images, and most of them move slower than normal life. Perhaps this is why I have remembered this particular day over the others, as each moment was seemingly placed on a specific synapse in my brain to make it easier to recall later. As I looked down the length of the snake, I noticed in the corner of my eye movement happening outside the cathedral-like floor-to-ceiling windows. There, I see a utility truck backing into the side of the building, and though I cannot hear the crash, I feel the vibration as I remember the whole building beginning to shake. This part of my memory fades into an old black-and-white newsreel format. I can almost see each frame of the film ticking by, with objects and people moving in a jerky, jumpy kind of way. There are gaps between each image, and truthfully, those gaps are partly created because I was a distracted kindergartner, mostly focused on Play-Doh. The images are of children scattering and chairs being pushed away from the table in desperation. Then, in one dramatic moment, all eyes look upwards and every child is pointing in unison to a chandelier light suspended 16 feet above my head. Time and memory are mysterious things that I may never fully understand. But in that moment, with the chandelier about to fall from on high, I remember freezing and gazing at my blue Play-Doh snake 
as if I knew I was going to be okay. I don't remember it falling and crashing on the table, obliterating my Play-Doh creation, but I do remember the very distinct feeling of pain as a piece of triangular-shaped glass lodged just above my left eyebrow. The next memory I have is sitting in the nurse's office, just on the other side of the long forested hallway. I remember the nurse telling me that I was going to be okay as she pulled the piece of glass out and placed a bandage over the wound. You are a lucky boy. I don't think it will even leave a scar, the nurse whispered to me. Then she continued, you know, they say that people that go through something like this go on to change the world somehow. She smiled and it made me smile too. I know that she was just trying to make me feel better and less afraid, but I like to think that those words changed the way I saw my surroundings and gave me hope for what I might become. They announced a few days later that the school would close at the end of the academic year, and in time, after allowing the building to be used for storage and other less glamorous things, they tore it down. They built another school called Glen James Elementary that opened the next fall. This time, the school would sit high on a huge hill with plenty of sunlight washing over it. It was there, within a brand new modern building with teachers beaming with pride, that I experienced what can happen when both teachers and students no longer feel they are always in the back of the line. Part 2. The Dyslexia Reversal Glen J. James Elementary was the official name given to the new school up on the hill. And though I never knew him, I always wanted to thank him. Looking back, I like to imagine that the person he was in his life somehow reflected in the structure of the new building. At the time, this new building layout was based on a collaborative educational philosophy, or what became known as the pod, or open classroom design. I liked it, mostly, I think, because there were no ancient chandelier lights hanging over my head and no dark hallways to scramble through every morning. James Elementary, as most of my fellow students called it, was constructed in two basic semi-octagon sections. On one side were the lower grades, kindergarten through third grade, and on the opposite end of the school were three more classroom areas for fourth through sixth grade. Each grade area was separated nominally by floor-to-ceiling fabric-covered movable walls and was completely open to a center section of the pod, which housed our basic library and reading area. Some educators would later criticize all the open views as being too distractive to student learning. But what I remember is that every day I could look out through the center library area to the class across the way and see where I was going to be in a few years. For many children who grew up in the neighborhoods which surrounded that school, the experience of being able to see our future was not lost on us. I don't know if it was a fully intended feature of the layout or just a wonderful accidental byproduct. But either way, when I relived those days in my mind, I began with the view from my first grade desk through the library and into my future as a third grader. My older brother and I were separated by enough years that we were never in the same pod area or even in the same building after elementary school. However, my brother's reputation often haunted me because teachers would try to place the student they thought I would be into the shell 
that my brother had been in their classrooms in the years before. I know that they surely tried to be professional about this judgmental phenomenon, but my brother's behavior left scars deep in the prejudice of those otherwise amazing teachers. And no teacher was more affected by my brother's relentless rebellion than Mrs. Flinchfist, my upcoming second grade teacher. In every family, when there are multiple siblings, each child must figure out how to distinguish themselves from the rest. Some do this by being quieter or louder than others, and some explore athletics, while yet others immerse themselves in the arts. The truth is that there are so many different ways and even combinations that can make each of us different from another, or at least slightly unique within our family system. We all have to find that one thing or one way of being that generates enough attention and validation that helps us to be okay in this world. My older brother chose the route of mayhem and anarchy. There was not a rule, law, or social norm that my brother found comforting or helpful. Though this trait would later gain him the wrong attention from our local police officers, and once it would get him kicked out of a church, but mostly his deep rebellion manifested itself during school hours. In particular, the year he spent in Mrs. Flinchfist's classroom back in the old Douglas Elementary building created the deepest scar of prejudice against all future children of my family. At the end of each school year, the teacher from behind the movable wall and czar of the next year's classroom would make a visit and look over their potential students for the following year. When Mrs. Flinchfist hobbled around the permeable barrier, she quickly caught sight of me. I will never know for sure what caused her to need a cane that day, but it is very likely that my brother's antics from years past were surely at least partly responsible for her unstable gait. She looked at the construction paper name tag hanging from the front portion of my desk and paying particular attention to the family name, she slowly brought her eyes up to meet mine. Memory can be altered as the years pass, and it has been a long time since I sat in a first-grade desk, but I believe I saw sweat dripping from her nose and a little foam developing in her mouth as she stared into my eyes. I had heard the stories of my older brother and how he had treated Mrs. Flinchfist, but until that moment, I had not fully believed them. When school resumed after the summer break, I remember making up excuses as to why my mother should let me stay at home. She even had to walk with me that first day to make sure I actually entered the building and into my second grade class. As I entered the pod and made my way past the classroom I had become so familiar with the previous year, I noticed the new group of first graders smiling as they explored the desk that once was mine. I thought, just for a moment, Maybe I could just blend in with them for one more year. I turned my head back to where I knew I needed to go and allowed myself to read the large sign hanging from the ceiling just beyond what was now my past. It read, Welcome back, second graders. Each step I took towards my new classroom and Mrs. Flinchfisk's realm made my feet grow heavier and slower until it seemed as if my shoes were made of Velcro and sticking to every strand of carpet. I was breathing like a plugged-up vacuum cleaner as my heart was beating like a hummingbird and I could taste the milk and cornflakes from breakfast in my mouth. I did not want to be there, but my mother pushed me from behind and I stumbled my way into the second grade. 
Standing with her back to the class and writing her name on the chalkboard was a person too young to be Mrs. Flinchfist. She slowly etched her name in big pink letters across the whole board. M.S. space O-P-I-N-H-E-A-R-T. Miss Openheart. Well, it was Miss Oppenheart, but I liked Openheart. I immediately turned to my mother and told her she could go now. I think I actually pushed her out of the classroom and quickly sat down in my seat. I sat there transfixed, attempting to learn more about this person who had just saved my life, or at least that portion of me that existed during my second grade year. I will never know if Mrs. Flinchfist and I could have survived each other, because shortly after she encountered me at the end of the first grade year, she announced her retirement. I cannot say for sure that her decision not to come back was based on those preconceived fears of having another person from my family in her classroom, but the permanent sweat stains in the first grade carpet next to my old desk would highly suggest it. It had never occurred to me that teachers retire or change in any way. When we are young, we simply believe that the world and the people around us stay the same forever, even while we change and grow. Part of me was completely disillusioned when I revisited the elementary school 20 years later and discovered that not only had all the teachers I knew back then had moved away to other schools, but worst of all, they all had changed by growing older. Deep inside each one of us, we just want something to remain the same so that when we really need it the most, we can simply return to that time, space, and be okay. I believe that is why I write stories. So, in a way, those moments and the important people do still exist as they once were. Long before I came to live on the earth, well-meaning human beings created a fictitious family who liked to talk to each other in oversimplistic and repetitive phrases. These stories were about seeing their dog spot, run, or their father jump rope, but they read like a Martian trying to learn an earth language. Over and over, a brother would repeat phrases to his sister, saying things like, Oh, 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 see? Oh, see, Jane? Funny, funny, Jane. Each book added a few more phrases and a few more words with the very plausible expectation that every human child would be reading by the end of first grade, or at the very least, shortly into their second grade year. This is one of the reasons I thought I might just be from another planet. As try as I might, the words never made sense. All my classmates were well on their way to finishing book 12 in the series, and I was still struggling to complete book 3. The chart on the wall made it clear that a student who had completed anything less than book 8 must have something wrong with their brain. Once again, I found myself learning from the back of the class. Once you have learned to do something... It seems so silly to even imagine a time when you did not know how to do that thing, or even that it would have been difficult to learn that something in the first place. I think one of the most sacred and most difficult things about being a teacher comes in the willingness to step into that place of not knowing how to help a student. Miss Oppenhart found the patience to suspend her own reality every day as she worked with me. With deep anguish in her heart, I remember her listening to me struggle to say over and over, C, C, 
see see Spot run just before Christmas break. I could tell that even her stamina was waning. I have childhood images of her sitting at her desk, studying something with a crinkled brow. In between pages, she would look up at me and, with the determination of an Olympic weightlifter, strain with her eyes to fix what was wrong with me. In a flash of energy and insight, she raised her hand as if she needed to get permission to go to the bathroom and announced that she would be back in a few minutes. She asked her student teacher to maintain order while she dashed across the open pod to consult with another teacher. I feel a deep instinctual need to apologize to all student teachers and substitutes that I have encountered over the years, but in particular for Shelley Miltausen, who spent eight weeks of her life learning how to teach nearly unresponsive seven and eight-year-olds. It was not that we were always comatose in our demeanor, as most of the time we were a fairly standard bunch of normal, energetic, and chaotic students. I don't know if it was that the second grade brain can only fully connect with one teacher at a time, or if all student teachers appeared to us as a completely different species of life. However, as soon as Miss Oppenhart would leave our class and leave the student teacher to our care, we would cease to move or interact. It was like all time and purpose paused while our teacher moved out of our sightline. Shelley, or Miss Miltausen, as she tried without success to have us call her, would try to inspire us by imitating Mrs. Oppenhart's actions and teaching style, but to no avail. She would talk to us, and we would sit there with mouths half open, gazing in her gentle direction, while our brains turned inward and cycled through the repetitive phrases from Dick and Jane books. So, to Shelley and all other substitutes and student teachers, I say, see, 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 we turned out okay. I hope they did too. It was not until much later in my life that I came to understand how lucky I was to have Miss Oppenhart as my second grade teacher. She had just recently become a teacher, and her education included the latest in educational theories. In particular, she had been exposed to a much-overlooked condition that can inhibit learning, called dyslexia. Because of her knowledge that I might simply have a different way of seeing and processing those words in the world, I came to understand that despite my issues with reading, I was a fairly normal kid. I might not have been at the front of the line, but sometimes... Just knowing you are in the middle somewhere can change the trajectory of one's path in life. Up until the late 1970s and early 1980s, dyslexia was either not known or simply used as a mildly derogatory term for students who were perceived as not as bright as others. Even today, while the word is often known, the actual definition and lifelong implications for someone with dyslexia are underappreciated if not simply misunderstood. For some, then and now, dyslexia is just another euphemistic term for less intelligent children and adults who cannot spell or read like the rest of the human race. The actual definition of dyslexia is a learning difficulty that primarily affects the skills involved in accurate and fluent word reading and spelling, and is often accompanied by difficulties in phonological awareness, verbal memory, and verbal processing speed. However, for me, because I was diagnosed just before we let out for winter break and all the animated Christmas shows were playing on television, 
I experienced it as the Rudolph syndrome. It was like I had a red nose and I was not able to play in any of the reindeer games. I was that slow kid who could never catch up with the other kids in reading or was afraid to be called upon to write something on the board because I knew I would spell something wrong. I was constantly afraid that people would laugh at me for not being like them. Even now, when I write stories, my editors will point out my constant misuse of words that sound the same but have a different spelling and meaning, like T-H-E-R-E versus T-H-E-I-R, or H-E-A-R and H-E-R-E. There were many days while I sat at my desk trying to read the repetitive words of Dick and Jane when I hoped I really was from Mars. Perhaps my brain simply needed more time to adjust to the higher oxygen levels of the Earth's atmosphere in order to be able to read like other human children. I did everything to concentrate all my Mars superpowers to fix my brain, but nothing worked. That is when I realized that Miss Oppenheart must have been sent to Earth years before by the Mars officials to protect and guide me while I acclimated to human culture. Maybe she had arranged to take the place of Miss Flinchfist just in time to get me the Earth language training I needed, albeit disguised as the special resource learning classroom. Whatever her reason and secret identity may have been, Miss Oppenhart made it possible for me to improve my use of the English language through the latest educational techniques. Once a day, I would spend one hour just before lunch as a dyslexic guinea pig, trying out the most recent miracle procedures designed to help children like me. Sometimes, I got the distinct impression that the resource teacher was just making things up to see how I would react. On one day, she would have me read in slow motion, and then the next day, she would have the words in large print to determine if that changed my reading ability. It did not. However, the fact that she was willing to try almost anything to help made me feel deep inside the human being I was becoming that I would be okay. In time, she exposed me to different smells while I was reading, and though that did not work either, it did lead me to my love for the scent of lilacs and anything blue or purple. It was her observation of my love of those colors that inspired her to have me read through translucent blue rulers. I could see the words through the light blue center part of the ruler and it allowed me to only focus on one line at a time. I don't know if this ever became an officially approved mitigating practice to help other students with their dyslexia, but it had an immediate and positive impact on my reading aptitude. Within weeks, I was helping others in the resource classroom to read better, and when I returned to Mrs. Oppenhart's classroom full-time, I became one of the top readers. The use of a simple colored ruler made it possible for my brain to interpret the earthly letters on a page as words, instead of seeing them as strange and mixed up artwork. I began wearing tinted colored sunglasses whenever possible, as it allowed me to look cool and read at an ever faster pace. This had the added effect of making me look slightly alien to other people, and for some reason, I was okay with that too. A note to the listener. As a person with dyslexia, putting my stories in audio form is more difficult than it may appear after the editing process. If you have dyslexia, please know you will be okay.
and you might even change the world.